0: Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast.politicology.com at or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape of this election. I'm very excited about our panel today because it is Lincoln Project co-founder, and former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Good morning, Jennifer, and thank you for taking time for us again.
1: I am thrilled to be here with the ever-amazing Ron (laughs) Steska.
0: And Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike, I eat numbers for breakfast Madrid. It's great to have you back, Mike. We're looking forward to it. I love having conversations with you guys. (laughs) On today's episode, we're going to take a look at some of the reporting from Bob Woodward's upcoming book, Rage. Woodward conducted 18 on-the-record interviews with Trump for the book and was also given access to top officials in the White House. Now, the biggest revelation this week was that Trump understood how deadly the coronavirus was on February 7th and shared that with Woodward, but not the American people. Trump told Woodward,
2: You just breathe the air. That's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your you know, even your strenuous flus.
0: After this interview took place, Trump went on to tell the nation that the virus was no worse than the flu and even predicted it would miraculously disappear. I think before this week, it was easy to assume ignorance. It's not usually hard to think that Trump is under-informed. The biggest revelation is that he knew, perhaps better than any elected official, about how dangerous the virus was. So Jennifer... I want to go to you first on this, because we've talked about how this report shapes how we think about the coronavirus response on a broad scale. Can you help us and our listeners think about how individuals and families who've been directly affected should consider the government's coronavirus response?
1: These um, tapes from Bob Woodward's research for this book, where we hear the voice of the president of the United States of America, there's, there's no question. He, he can't say I didn't say it. It wasn't me. You, we hear his voice. We know that it's him. And to hear him speak in such a cavalier manner about the knowledge that he had before any of us really even knew what the coronavirus was, about the severity of the disease, about the ease of its contagious nature, about um, a, a things like uh, it's not just older people. It's going to hurt younger people, too. all these details about it that he knew. He knew. And then every single day, he faced the American people and lied. Remember back at the beginning where he, for a, a month or so or more, he was having daily press conferences, how combative he was, how defensive he was, how grossly dishonest he was, how dangerous he was. And all this time he knew. So It's not just that we've lost 192,000 Americans so far from this disease. And that is like, you can't even wrap your head around what that is. But when you think about what that means, fathers, mothers, children, birthday celebrations, graduations, people who will not have a parent with them when they get married. Ron, I'm getting a little bit emotional. I apologize. I try not to do this when i 'm at work, um, because what I was going to say next is and it's not it 's not just the families who have lost someone to the coronavirus. If you have anyone in your family who or in your the people you love and care about, who has confronted any sort of serious medical issue in these past six or seven months, they have been impacted. By the mishandling of the coronavirus if you've had somebody who's had to be hospitalized someone who's had to be in hospice uh an elderly parent or grandparent who's in a nursing home um, a child who has any kind of a critical illness and the uh, americans are now being separated from the people they love the most when they need them the most because you can't be with them while they're getting medical care um, and this is something that we've confronted in my family in a couple of different circumstances, unfortunately. Um, so the de- the depth of depravity displayed by the president of the United States is really immeasurable in this case. And, and depraved is not a word that I've ever used to describe Donald Trump before, but that's what's been exposed by these Woodward tapes. They're extremely damning. They're going to be politically very costly. But more important than any of that, uh, I think that they are really going to break the heart of of Americans in a way that they haven't experienced before.
0: Yeah. Mike, I also want to look at this from a policy standpoint, because early on in the pandemic, we saw major shortages in personal protective equipment, PPE, like masks in hospitals. How would you put the fact that Trump knew about the danger and did not take measures to protect healthcare workers? in context for voters who are on the fence? That's a great question, and,
2: and I want to answer that by kind of stepping back a moment sure. and examining it this way. Yeah. Uh, you and Jennifer both characterized this correctly. For the first time, we are seeing the president and hearing in his own words and his own voice a a sober, methodical knowledge and understanding of the virus, which he not only discounted at that moment in time where he could have saved tens of thousands of his countrymen's lives, but we literally just yesterday saw him continuing to deny the severity mm-hmm. of this situation in front of his followers, um, yeah. of which there were thousands of people, and he continues to put his countrymen's lives in jeopardy. Yeah, in his own yeah. in his own words, this is deadly. In his own words, this is easily communicable. He has known this for a long period of time. And I think it's important to set that framework for answering your question, which is, why? Um, And the policy framework, of course, we we know. And I believe that what was happening in his own mind was that if he started to show that we were susceptible to this, something that he could not control, it would be a demonstration of his and his own country's weakness in some perverted sense of a strong man needing to show strength. And he believed, and I think, unfortunately, quite accurately, that a very large majority of his followers would, would, would continue to toe that line. And so the dangerousness of what happens in a time of pandemic was, let's remember, he, he not only just, just denied it quietly, uh, in the same way that you might have seen uh, a Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War, and, and denying that memos of the threats existed, he was actively promoting yeah. uh, fake treatments. He was actively lying about saying that we were prepared for this in a PPE uh, Mm -hmm. framework. He was out there saying, you know, this is just going to go away. He was was and remains committed to not wearing a mask and promoting a mask when out in public.
0: Slow the testing down, because if we don't have testing, we don't have cases. And that's what he's saying is at a certain
2: point, human lives are simply expendable for what he, in his own dark world views as a greater good, which means in, his, in Trump's what's good for Donald Trump. Yeah. and what's good for Donald Trump is ultimately good for America. Mm-hmm. And as long as you know I tell my people what to do, they will they will follow behind that. And this is not only angering, but it's it's heartbreakingly sad mm-hmm. because it, it shows that not only is he you know willing to to expend the lives of his own supporters and his own countrymen, but that there is a sense that many among him are willing to do the same. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer a reflection of the president alone, but it's a reflection of where people are at who will continually go down this path. And I think that we need to start talking about Trump and Trumpism in that context to Mm -hmm. understand where we are at as a country and as a society. Remember, we're the only country in the world dealing with this problem. Yeah. Certainly at this scale, rather, yes. is the way I should frame at it.
0: At this point, yes.
2: Yeah, at right. this point. And and, and we had forewarning. We, The president knew that it was coming. He knew the severity. He knew the ease of transmission. And the word that keeps coming back in my mind was, he knew it was deadly. He knew people were going to die. And he chose coldly, consciously, soberly, methodically, not to— Premeditatedly. Premeditatedly is a great word, Ron— that he was not going to change course.
1: And and Ron, what uh, what what Mike also just said about Trump and Trumpism. Up up until now, the Lincoln Project has been talking about Trumpism in the context of all of these Republican senators and Republican party leaders and all these folks who have enabled the president and empowered him and and protected him and defended him. And and so that's a very political thing. And we say that was so wrong and so damaging to our country that they need to be defeated. This is a whole different story. We know that Pence knew the same thing that Trump knew. You have to assume that he had some circle of, of advisors who knew it because he, you know, he didn't look it up on his own. It came to him through his briefings. So throughout this entire operation, what did Mitch McConnell know? What did Kevin McCarthy know? What did uh, Romney McDaniel know? But there is such a broad circle Of Republican leaders who are directly connected to this president, who have have not just protected him politically, but in this pandemic, protected his dangerous incompetence that has led to the deaths of Americans. That's the Trumpism. That's that's Trumpism. That's what we have to defeat.
0: That's exactly the point I was going to make because we 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 are. It's very easy to fixate on this being the president's fault. And it is. But he's not alone. There are people around him who told him exactly what was happening.
2: Let me play this out a little bit longer. And I think this is really important for our listeners to understand. Just yesterday and going forward, the president continues to lie about it. And we all understand the depravity of that. And again, Jennifer, I think that's the right word. But what about those that are enabling it? Still, yeah. they know he's lying. They heard him on tape. They've had that information for months, and rather than have the shame of any human being to say, "Okay, I got caught. let's try and save lives. let's develop a plan let's shift let's shift our strategy." Not only Donald Trump, but they all continue to do it. There's not a single Republican that has renounced this, and not only yeah. this what he said, but the fact that he continues to have rallies. Yeah. He continues to put people in harm's way. Yeah. There is still
0: no voice saying, yeah. this is wrong. I want to flip that upside down, Jennifer, and I want both of you to speak to this because Mike is, Mike is obviously right that none of them are criticizing him for this. But at the same time, no one has come to his defense. And that, seems, that, that silence to me seems so deafening and damning because it shows, that, it shows the distance, the daylight. Between them, I mean, obviously, the, the the spinelessness, right, of of his enablers. We've talked plenty about that, but I think if you if you flip this upside down and look at their unwillingness to come to his defense, I think that speaks volumes about where he's headed and and the trajectory of this race. I mean, what do you
1: think? It it absolutely does. And and to, you know, so let's start with what mike just said, you know the the depravity of this president the the depth of his of how depraved he is Is continuing to he gets deeper and deeper as he can and, and he's adding to it He's not just that he's continuing to lie about the past He's adding to it with new lies and new depravity when he's trying to convince the american people that a vaccine could possibly be available before election day even. It's another example of how depraved he is, where he's completely um, focused on and taking advantage of people's fears and, and emotions to advance his own political agenda because there's no vaccine ready before. We all know that. No vaccine before election day. Uh, so unlikely that there's a vaccine before sometime next year. So So, so that's even worse. And then you talked about the silence from Republican leaders right now, um, and 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 it's and I thought of this for the first time when the military comments came out last week, the the despicable things that the president said about our our troops and the silence from the Republicans at the time. They're silent for a couple of reasons, um, and and the problem is they're all they're silent. All the reasons are political. They're silent because they know it's true. They know he said it. They know it's horrific. They know it's true. So. What can they do and then they're silent and not Condemning him because they're scared to pieces right now of losing their political power and Assuming that they have see this the same data behind the scenes that we see and we know that they do They know that these two things are going to damn the entire republican ticket on election day So it, it 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 is it's gross. All I can think is it is gross, the degree to which the Republican leadership is now, um, you know, had, they have so hitched their wagon to Trump over the last three and a half years that there's no way to stop themselves from going over the cliff with him if that's what happens on election day.
0: Before we go to Trump's response to all of this and the Trump administration's response to this, Mike, I want to ask you about, um, the politics of this electorally. I mean, how, how impactful is using Trump's own voice? How, how impactful could that be for voters who are on the fence? Because this is different from when, you know, um, reporting comes out that he knew this, or he knew that. I mean, we actually have him on tape now. How, how, how big a difference is there and how, how impactful is that for
2: that's a really good question. And, and it's, I think, actually a foundational question in understanding what is going on in the race. So let me, let me yeah. walk through some of the numbers and yeah. what this means. And I'm going to talk about three different voter segments Great. in just a second. But f- first, um, I, I want, I want people to know, and this might be a little bit troubling. We may not see much of a movement in political polls as a result of this really shocking information. And I'll explain why. And if we do, I would not be surprised at all if there's a rather quick snap back into the normal trajectory and range. Mm. Okay, First, uh, to set the context, this is the most historically stratified race in the history of modern polling. What I mean by that is, if you look at the polling range of Joe Biden, it has remained remarkably consistent since the day he uh, essentially clinched the race back in March. Donald Trump is polling at the low end of his range – and is just coming back from sort of what we would consider the post-COVID summer. For the past five or six months, the only thing that broke the fever of Republican support for Donald Trump was COVID. People literally had to die in a global pandemic before a small minority of the Republican base started to peel off of him. And I want you to take a moment and understand the gravity of that. Because I don't for a moment believe that, you know, we 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 sometimes, pundits will put out things like, you know, this is a cult or this is a, mm. you know, these people don't understand or they're being brainwashed. The reality is there's some very strong fundamentals driving this behavior, and we can get to that in just a second. But remember, we have heard his voice saying very awful things before, prior to the 2016 race. Remember, we heard the the famous Grab Him, yeah. the axis Hollywood tape. Um, that was his own voice. Yeah. And there was a small, quick drop in support, which immediately snapped back. Right. And it's important to understand that we have seen something very similar, heard something rather very similar before.
0: He did apologize for that. He did I mean, apologize. It was, it was shallow. He reversed himself. But he, there was an apology after that.
2: It, and, so, yep, yep. And so let me, let me explain kind of the differentiation. Yeah, um, yeah. So there, I want to talk about in terms of Democrats decline uh, the undecided that remain very small undecided and then republicans to answer your question sorry about the long one no, no this is great so democrats have created essentially a floor of support for joe biden which they will not go down joe biden has continually and regularly poll tested at the low range of if maybe uh, rarely as low as 47 but in about a 49 to 51 point range it's been remarkably consistent historically consistent and it's driven not by the enthusiasm necessarily of Joe Biden you've heard of this enthusiasm gap but it's driven by the overwhelming sentiment to be anti Donald Trump and these voters will not move they're not budging so there will be october surprises there will be fake news there will be misinformation campaigns there's going to be a lot of lying about um about um uh, Joe Biden, but those numbers I do not expect will move. Okay, okay that's important. Okay. It's important because that's not what Hillary Clinton was showing in 2016. Mm. There were very wide gyrations. And when you are locked in solid at a high 40s range uh, with a very few undecided, um, you're in a pretty strong position as any candidate running for anything. Right. Doesn't mean right. that you can't lose, but it means that the odds are certainly in your favor. Donald Trump, let me switch to the Republicans now. Donald Trump, for three and a half years, had a very strong base of support, remarkably. Now, he would lie about it, and he would say we're at 96%. I'm at 110% with Republicans, mm-hmm. whatever he would make up. But it's all designed to, to create a sense of loyalty and fealty to the, to the leader of the party, which is why so many of the senators around him are scared, is this fear that the base is with him and they are not with the senators. They are for mm-hmm. Trump and they're not for anybody else in the Republican Party. And there's a lot of truth to that, okay? Right. So when he uh, – and he has put, created an, an environment which his advertising, his messaging is getting increasingly more violent. There's more and more violence in the streets. There's more cars on fire. There's more end of America coming. There's more this is the end game. And if you vote for Joe Biden, this is the end of the world. It's very apocalyptic. And it's going to continually get that way. So a lot of Republicans are not necessarily – enough Republicans, I should say, are not necessarily – um, pro trump as much as they are anti biden on mm-hmm. the republican corner and that has created a very strong floor and ceiling mm-hmm. too now it's a little bit more fluid and when you see him tightening up and that that word i know has become very controversial but when he is closing up the gap with battleground states specifically in the rust belt it's happening because these apocalyptic messages are resonating this is 20 30 years of of media consumption in, in sort of the, the the world within which trump supporters often kind of live and so these messages are very resonant and the Lincoln Project uh, uh, um, has done a really good job of peeling off enough of these voters. And by enough, it's in the single digits. We've talked about the Bannon line, mm-hmm. but these voters have are in some to a certain extent are coalescing back. Mm-hmm. We're still at where we have you know, committed to be and we're still successful with the numbers at this point in time. But the tightening in these battleground uh, states reflect that. So, so that's why the rigidity. But now, again, yes. second wind up. Yes. but Wait, you know, here's the
0: answer. Just press pause for one yeah. second, because I just want to flag for our listeners that if you're interested in what Mike means when he says the Bannon line and, you're, and you want to dig into these numbers more, go back to an episode called The Lincoln Project Effect. And we, t- we discussed that on that episode, and, and Mike's going to be doing a lot more on the numbers here on, between now until Election Day, but if you want to do a primer on that... Um, you, you break that down in a different episode. So just want to flag that for our folks. Go ahead.
2: Real helpful. Now, here's the critical, critical vote, the undecideds. So Republicans aren't moving and Democrats aren't moving no matter what is happening. And that's what's been consistent for the past eight months. And I don't expect that trajectory to change. What's different is the undecideds. Mm-hmm. And there are very, very, very few undecideds, which is very typical of an extremely stratified race. People have chosen. They've made up their minds in some of the public polling. There's not enough undecided to actually affect the outcome of the race. And I'll give you an example. Wisconsin consistently is showing Joe Biden in a 47 to 50 range. It's consistently showing Trump in a 42 to 44 range with a six to seven point undecided, which means Trump needs to get 100% of the undecided in order to put Wisconsin in play. Possible, but not likely, right? And this is where the ghosts of 2016 start to emerge and say, Mm -hmm. what happened? Okay. So these undecided voters have a couple of key characteristics, The first is there are much, there are far fewer of them than there were in 2016. The second is up until very recently, there has been overwhelmingly supporting, uh, they have shown overwhelming support for Biden when pressed in the polls, up to a two to one margin. And most importantly, I think, is historically undecided break towards the challenger late in an election. They do not go for the incumbent. If you are still undecided after four years, it is highly unlikely that the incumbent can close the door on getting these voters back. Yes. It doesn't mean he can't. It just means it's highly unlikely. Yes. And so with all of those indicators, Trump really needs to get a huge number of these undecided in order to make this thing work. So you may see small gyrations in the polling as a result of these really shocking revelations. And I know that it's going to leave a lot of people very dispirited and mm-hmm. discouraged, and it should but it, it, for reasons that might be outside of the, the context of this race, right. it's really a mm-hmm. social right. phenomenon, which we're witnessing play out in our political process. Yes. But you got to understand that we are so rigid. It does not matter, right? Truth doesn't matter to a lot of folks, nor does these shocking revelations. And a lot of this stuff is simply baked in. And when you may be talking to friends or family that are Trump supporters, you'll roll your eyes or just be aghast at the fact that they can easily dismiss this stuff because they're not making determinations at the ballot box based off of this type of criteria. They're simply not consuming this information. Right. They they hear it, they yeah. understand it. Yeah. They will also believe it, frankly, but they but don't it it, matter.
0: But it won't matter in terms of the voting context. Yeah, it will As not move their opinion or their behavior. Right. So this is Jennifer, I, this this actually brings me to It's a perfect setup for the question that I wanted to ask you, which is given given how Mike so meticulously laid out the stratification of this race, and I would Mike correct me if I'm you know, but I would call that an extremely polarized dynamic, right? And we just had a conversation with uh, with Steve Schmidt and Stuart Stevens about how polarization in America has led to the radicalization uh, that we see under Donald Trump, mm -hmm. and I think that there's a point to be made here about the president's role. As a unifier in crisis, and how Americans are taught to look for the look to the president for information during a crisis, um, and so we and, and we don't have that now, um, but but now in times of crisis we crave unity, we crave that kind of sense that we're all in this together, and we don't have that. So, what would you say? I mean, give people who believed him in the first place the benefit of the doubt. But now we don't have that anymore. I mean, uh, I I just want to throw it to you to to comment on this, because it feels like there's a lot
1: to be said here. I think, you know, today we're taping this on September 11th. And I think there's a really powerful example here on how we responded as a nation 19 years ago on this day. And at that time, George W. Bush was president. Over the course of his presidency, he lost a lot of support. From Republicans. He certainly was, you know, very quickly lost support from Democrats. And there's a lot that unfolded in his presidency that was uh, controversial and divisive. But on that day, and in that moment, um, George W. Bush stepped up for the American people in every way. He was honest. He was direct. He was reassuring. He was he never said the word Republican or Democrat. He um, he was he was clear. He was forceful. He was, I mean I go through the the you know one after the other. I, I remember you know and all the moments that sort of threaded beyond that. Standing at ground zero with his arm around that fireman and the bullhorn in his hand, saying you know the people who you know hear us now. They're listening here, you know. They're going. They're going to hear from us, you know, soon. When he threw out the first pitch uh, at the first baseball game after everything, you know, had to shut down, and the roar, the overwhelming roar of the people in those seats in that in that packed stadium, and I, I'm gonna, I tear up when I talk about it because I'm very emotional today, Ron. That you're asking me emotional things at a moment in my life when I'm emotional anyway. Um, I was, a, I was a, a mom of a lot of young children on that day. So I think that when we look back in history at these different moments when America has faced crisis and the ability of our presidents to put partisanship and personal ambition and power aside and bring us together in those moments in a way that we desperately need, and we compare that to what we are experiencing from the president of the United States today. It is the clearest, starkest, and in many ways, most painful example of why Donald Trump has to go. Now, you talk about the the response of this administration, and Mike talked a lot about why there are voters who are never going to move. It, I, I, there There is a certain group of people out there, of voters out there, mostly Republicans, not all who are so invested in this president for a number of reasons, and it almost doesn't matter what those reasons are, because they're not going to move. God bless them, that's their right. Here at the Lincoln Project, we are talking specifically to those Republicans that are in a bigger, a much larger category than that. Because maybe that number that we're talking about, that Mike talked about that are never gonna move, is it 30%, is it 28%? I'm talking to all those other Republicans out there who I think have supported the president out of political differences with Democrats, who have supported the president. I and mean, we can go through the list of reasons that throughout our history, people have chosen one political side or another. And when we talk to those people, you know, stacks are going to begin to matter. You know, data is, are, is going to begin to matter. For example, this is what I just think is a small example of, of of the difference between these two groups. The population of the United States of America accounts for about four percent of the population of the world,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we have, but we also account right now for about twenty five percent of coronavirus deaths. And yet, the president stands in front of the camera every day and says, "We're doing a great job. We're our response has been amazing. Everything we do is right." Everything. So it's just not, it's just not true. And so we are talking to those Republicans who understand that and, and, and they, and they need, you know, they just, kind of, they need to, to be able to take that e- extraordinary step for some people to vote Democrat for the first time in their lives rather than Republican. And, and I, and so when we look at, and, and I'm, maybe I'm getting too convoluted, but So when we talk about the response of this administration to the pandemic, when we talk about it as the Lincoln Project, that's who we're talking to. That's who I'm talking to, at least, because I remain absolutely convinced that the majority of Republicans in this world while they have strong political differences from the majority of Democrats and have strong differences with me right now about what the party should be about and how the party should be structured and responding, what I believe we continue to have in common is a genuine love of country and a genuine care for our fellow Americans. And so when we're talking about messaging and, ta- and, and how the, pr- the president has responded, how, like that's My filter. That's who I'm talking to, and that's what I think we need to emphasize.
0: I want to turn more attently now to the Trump administration's response to all of this, to Woodward's reporting, because after the news broke, and you you mentioned this, after the news broke on Wednesday, Trump called the book just another political hit job. On Thursday, he took to Twitter to say that Woodward had his quotes for months and didn't release them because Trump gave good and proper answers. That's what Trump said. Trump's relied on the the idea that he was trying to downplay the virus to avoid a panic. On March 19, Trump said, "I, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. Jennifer, Trump is telling supporters that he wanted to avoid a panic. What would you say to thoughtful Republican voters who've been willing to take Trump at his word um, because his, his entire campaign is about playing to our worst fears, so it's bullshit. How does that... And
1: excuse me, I try not to. You know, I don't try. But that's what that is. It is total bullshit. This president had ran his campaign in 2016 on panic and fear and and uh, division. He has uh, run his entire presidency on panic fear and division. He wants you to panic about all those black people who might come to your suburban neighborhoods. He wants you to panic about the Mexicans coming across the border and, and the rapists and the M13 and, and MS-13. And, and he wants you to panic about um, death and destruction and fire in the streets and, and rioters and looters. And even though 96% of all protests, all these protests have been peaceful uh, and, and, and without, you know, disruption. And he wants the American people to be afraid of each other, to be afraid of people outside of our country. And he wants them to vote on election day in a state of heightened anxiety and panic. So that answer is total bullshit and nobody should listen to it or take it seriously. So what do we need to do? We need to take a step back and we need to understand that this president himself is in the greatest panic of his lifetime because he's about to lose an election. He is in fear of losing this election. And we see that his campaign is starting to descend into some of the chaos that he has been seeding amongst the American people for the past three and a half years. And we are not going to let his panic and his fear lead us. Forget it we're coming together. We're going to be clear-eyed and focused. And the people of this country, the one thing that Donald Trump is succeeding at is he is going to unite us in doing the right thing on election day and make sure that he is defeated.
0: So I want to piggyback on that panic point that Jennifer just made, because you talked about, Mike, that uh, panic messaging and how it's playing in the Rust Belt. So how can we reach those voters about both what... Trump knew about the coronavirus and the violence they're seeing on Fox News and sort of right wing media?
2: That's a great question. So let me um, first start by saying throughout my entire political career as a political consultant, one of the great adages in the business is that you win by addition and not by subtraction. Donald Trump has proven that old adage patently false. And here's why. With the electoral college system we have that is as stratified as we have it and is regionally homogenous by race and ethnicity, the only way that Donald Trump can win literally is by subtraction. Let me explain that. Mm. By running against states like, quote-unquote, California, or running against cities like Chicago and New York, these are clarion calls to the base which is again overwhelmingly a white demographic the Republican party as i've said consistently and you know for the past year is an 85% white party and it is the fastest shrinking demographic in America what he is doing is he is trying to and he will lose by a historic margin in the popular vote again as bad as he lost last time he will lose by even more but what he's trying to do is so consolidate the white, especially non-college-educated vote, Mm -hmm. that it overperforms the model in just enough states to win. So he is literally trying to win by subtraction. He's trying to drive the wedge between the popular vote and the electoral college to an extreme. Now, having said that, the way that you do that is exactly what you articulated, which is you run on a law and order message, you run on an apocalyptic view of Cities on Fire, uh, the urbanization, you know, quote-unquote urbanization of America, about MS-13 moving in next door. Michelle Bachman was quoted uh, two days ago saying that the Democratic Party has been taken over by black transsexual Marxists.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my God. This is, the, this is the, what Ann Applebaum referred to as creating an alternative reality for these voters to live in. Correct. Because if they were to open say their say eyes that, and look around them. Yeah? yeah?
1: Say that again, Mike. I missed that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Michelle
2: Bachman was. What coded. did she say? She said that the Democratic Party was over was uh controlled by black transsexual Marxists.
1: There you have it. That's the definition and, of what's wrong with the Republican yeah. Party, right so, there.
2: So what happens in this environment is these these voters that Jennifer was talking about earlier, which, and again, the stratification within the Republican Party as it exists is correlate to college education. If you are a college-educated Republican, you there's a much greater likelihood that you are willing to leave Trumpism and leave the Republican Party than if you do not have a college education. This is for a couple of reasons, which we'll probably get into at in a different podcast at a mm-hmm. different time. Mm-hmm. But know that the great break that is happening is between college and non-college-educated voters. This is important to understand what, to answer your question. Again, I, I'm <laughs> making all these long wind-ups, right? They're great answers. Sorry, okay. So what happens is Trump is actually... Moving voters away from him, the few the few voters that are undecided and are movable, at the same time he's consolidating his own vote. Here's why. When he's trying to get these Rust Belt states back into play, and he is marginally, he's picking up one or two points of non-college-educated white voters in the Rust Belt, he has also pushed college-educated whites in the Sun Belt away. And so it's his own messaging. He's creating a problem, a different problem for the one he's trying to solve for. Mm. And it's why states like Arizona, Texas, Georgia, North Carolina have become battleground states. He's sped up this demographic process by forcing white college republic white college educated republicans out of the fold. Not huge But by the same one or 2% margins that he's bringing the non college educated one or 2% in the Rust Belt into play on. So while the race may or may not be tightening, there's a lot of disagreement about this in social media and with, with, you know, uh, pollsters and researchers. He has unquestionably, I call it flattened the race by putting more states into play than were in play at any time in the past 30 years.
0: It's kind of like whack a mole. Like he's, it's it's backfiring on him. Perfectly. But It's whack-a-mole. It's
2: exactly what it is. And the Lincoln Project has doubled down on this trend. We have gone into Arizona early, recognizing this trend. We've gone into North Carolina. We've gone into Florida. We've gone into these states because we recognize that they have this demographic that is most open to understanding that I am not going to affiliate – with these dog whistles, with mm-hmm. this law and order imagery, with this fake dystopia that has been created. I'm not going to defend the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. I'm not supportive of all of this language and rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And I will know for social reasons. It's, they're socially ostracized yeah. Yeah. From, 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 um, from their uh, previous Republican brethren. Yeah. And that is, I think, one of the tactical errors that are made. So in many ways, we message into that, and that's how we communicate into that. Is especially with those voters yeah. who have a history um, that might make them a little bit more um, yeah. hopeful about America and yeah. less dystopian. Yeah. Is to say, do you're you really, not alone? You're not alone. First of all, there's a lot of us out there. Yeah. But most importantly, is this really what you believe America to be? Mm. Do you really believe, as Michelle Bachman would have you believe? <laughs> That there's if you look out your window, is this what you see? Yeah. Maybe yeah. just take a walk down Main Street, <laughs> grab a pastry, and a cup of coffee, wear a mask, please. But you know, when you do that, you're okay. Like yeah. America is not teetering on the brink. And where we are in deep, deep trouble, because yeah. we are in a lot yeah. of places, yeah. it's because of the president. Yeah. And that Dang. is that's when you start to recognize there's a break and people start to, you know, the fever breaks a little bit. Yeah. And with those handful of voters, remember the Lincoln Project has said from day one. We're not trying to win fifty percent of the vote, the Republican vote here. Right, We're trying to win enough voters, and so we're not trying to convince uh, uh, you know the right. majority or 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 you know a, a huge number of Republicans that Trump is wrong. We're trying to convince enough, right? And that's right. where we've been singularly that's focused, and that's important. how we've been doing it.
0: Yeah.
1: And and Mike made a good point. Just to emphasize it quickly, sure. I don't. I don't, I don't do the the Mike Madrid um, mile long wind ups. I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to try not to. I love his, but I'm going to try not to. Oh, sorry. that, the, um, that Trump cre- has created the chaos that he is using to move voters to vote for him. Be clear about that. And that has been his his style, his met his his thing his entire life. As he's trying to, he, you know, think about what happened when, when there were riots in Portland. He made them worse. He contributed to them. He sent federal troops in there, federal agents in there, knowing that it would blow up even more. Knowing he, he goes out and screams about law and order. Um, and, and, you know, everything he does is intended to um, fan the flames of the chaos and the fear and the anxiety. So that he can then turn around and manipulate the people who are feeling fear and anxiety to uh, further his own political power and his political ambition. You know, make no mistake that if you are one of those people out there who's not sure, who's looking at the world saying it feels like the world is on fire. You know, what is that? I know this president. Like I can, my gut is telling me this president is 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 not the, a, a good person he's not a good leader he's not the right but i i feel like you know i feel that anxiety i feel that fear if that, if you're one of those people I, I, you know I, I don't i'm not minimizing it i take a deep breath and let your brain clear for a second you know try to calm down a little bit like you would in any other anxious situation and and look at the path of what this president has said and done it is so clear he wants you to feel that way you know, had, we all need to step back and kind of understand what's happening out there.
0: All right. Now that we are up to speed on the most important news of this week, and I'm sure that we'll be returning to this soon because we expect more to come out on these Woodward tapes, I want to turn to the week ahead. So, Jennifer, as you're thinking about next week, what stories are you watching?
1: Well, you know, we're, Often in this segment, we talk about something new or something that might be off of people's radar and, and to keep an eye on that. And and you're particularly good at that, Ron, when you talk about some of the stories that you bring in. But as I'm looking into next week, I'm going to continue to watch closely. Um, and, and this is sort of a Mike Madrid thing. I'm going to be waiting behind the scenes to hear Mike's updated numbers in about seven to 10 days. I'm going to continue to watch closely the unfolding of the stories around the president's Honesty, let's say. I'm going to be watching the story about Trump's honesty. We have heard him in his own voice, in his own words, talk about his derision and his um um, you know, the degree to which he really demeans and degrades the troops and his honesty now on this uh issue of the coronavirus and the degree to which he completely devalues human life. When it comes to advancing his own political, because I think that unlike a lot of the things that have happened in the past that have been shocking for this president, I think those two stories are going to continue to stay. In the, I don't think they're going to be displaced by something else like so much of the other horrific things he has said and done. So I'm going to be watching that, and I'm to, and I and I think they're going to hang on long enough to have an impact. And before you move on to Mike's uh, what he's looking for, I want to go back to something I was doing on some of the previous roundups because i do th- i said earlier like i'm having an emotional time in my life right now in my personal life and all these things are impacting you know you know feeling even more emotional to me i think people need to be reminded that the majority of human beings in this world are good generous kind spirited people and there's this beautiful story out of i think the san diego area of california about this teenager who um um decided that she wanted to help young people who were experiencing, um, uh, Distress, emotional distress, you know, um, division amongst itself because of things that are unique physical traits, because of disabilities, because of diseases that may have, you know, impacted them. Uh, People with large, you know, a child that had a large birthmark on her face. um, Things like that, that drew negative attention to her. And this little girl, this little teenager is now hand making beautiful dolls to look like the child it. And she did it because she said she remembered when she was a kid, her parents got her a custom American girl doll that looked just like her and how good that made her feel. And so she's now out there hand sewing dolls for young people who have some kind of a physical difference, not, I don't want to say deformity, a physical uniqueness, a physical difference so that they can have a doll that looks just like them. And I think that's really beautiful.
0: It is beautiful. So the story I want to flag is uh, one that just came out today, which is that the Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD had drafted guidelines for wearing face coverings, both for healthcare providers and for veterans. And we just learned that the White House had stalled the public release of these guidelines. They essentially stopped them from being published and being disseminated to healthcare workers and veterans because they did not align with the lies that were coming out of the White House. And so this completely aligns with everything we know about Donald Trump and how he has been lying about the coronavirus now that we know what was in the Woodward tapes and his disdain for the military. It it all sort of aligns together. And I think there's going to be a lot more uh, to this story going into next week. And that's why I'm going to be watching it closely. Mike, what are you watching going into next week? I'm watching
2: the Hispanic vote. I think it's going to be fascinating, and it's very detailed, as you know, but um, bottom line is this. Uh, Florida is as much in play as it is right now because there appears to be a a strong consolidation of the Cuban vote in Miami-Dade counties uh, for Donald Trump, basically on a socialism and communism message. Um, Cubans represent about a third of the Hispanic vote in Florida. But another third is the Puerto Rican vote, Mm -hmm. which is likely to break very strong for Joe Biden. And so what we're going to see is, can Puerto Ricans turn out in enough numbers to offset the consolidation in the Cuban vote? Very distinct groups, all under the Latino umbrella. If the, that question is really probably going to be a determinative one and who carries Florida. Mm. So we're doing a lot of research, looking at a lot of polling data, checking county by county between the I-4 corridor where the Puerto Rican community is largely um, uh, located in Miami-Dade where you're seeing this uh, this really unique Cuban dynamic. And um, that's what I'm going to be focused on this week.
0: Excellent. And I know folks are anticipating more numbers episodes with you so i'm we'll, here we'll we're going to talk numbers <laughs> but actually that's a good segue because the listener question i want to bring in this week is from dave mills who says despite how many times trump shoots himself in the foot can a superior ground game bring him a victory especially since the dems seem to have taken their foot off the gas in holding in-person events Uh,
2: That's a great question. And the answer is, we don't know. And as I've been sharing with reporters who have been asking this question, the only people that would know would be political consultants who ran races in the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic. (laughs) Um, Look, I don't think so. I don't believe so. I think Trump is actually doing himself as much or more damage by knocking on doors right now. That is only speaking to very hardcore base. When you saw people, uh, Republicans, right. you know, maggot redheaded maggot people not showing up at Tulsa, Oklahoma, you knew that even hardcore Republicans were taking this very seriously. Mm-hmm. Now, the size and the scope of these uh, rallies are continuing to get bigger, but we are also going to see if these become super spreader events in the wrong states at the wrong time, and the epidemiology would suggest that it's a good possibility. So do I think that in-person campaigning and activity is going to be a net positive? I don't. Otherwise, we would probably be engaged in that
0: behavior, too. Jennifer and Mike, thank you so much for being on today. Love being with you. It's
1: always a pleasure, Van. Thank you.
0: And thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.